Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. This is episode number 27. So once again, we're scratching the surface on a very fascinating topic in the mini-series I'm doing of wartime rationing in unexpected places. This time we're talking about wartime rationing aboard railroad dining cars. And I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. The topic of this episode came about because I was forced to think outside the box for a World War II event that I was planning on attending and having a display for. And it was at the Pennsylvania Railroad Museum. And they really wanted to have all the exhibits focus on something having to do with the railroad, you know, obviously. And as we got closer to the event, I started to panic a little bit because I just thought, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've loved t- trains since I was a teenager, but um, I just was drawing a blank because I study wartime rationing. <laughs> what does that have to do with trains? And then I thought, wait a second, they ate aboard trains. Of course, there's rationing on trains. <laughs> so I immediately got so super excited because this was perfect. This is right up my alley. And I immediately started researching rationing in railroad dining cars. And right off the bat, I knew that this was perfect double dipping for (laughs) research because it wasn't just going to be, you know, what I hoped to be a great and engaging uh, display at an event, but I knew it could double as Uh, a podcast episode. So I went into it fully knowing it would become a podcast episode. And here we are. So as popular a topic as railroads and trains in America are, you'd be surprised how scattered and difficult it was to track down specific information about rationing and dining cars. They kind of touch on the topic. They just briefly mention the war really it's usually just like one or two sentences and everywhere I've looked I was really surprised but I did find some newspaper articles and I actually have some really cool and unexpected resources that I inherited from my great-grandpa Glenn Hazelrig which also will come into play so let's get down to it dining on rail cars wasn't new in World War II George Pullman created the first dining car called the Delmonico, named after the famous New York eatery, in 1868. Other railroads soon followed suit. You know, it seems like a really good idea, especially if you're traveling long distance, to have this really nice service on board your train. The B&O Railroad began operating its first dining car in 1881. Of course, there were other railways that offered dining services, like the Union Pacific, the Southern Pacific, the Pennsylvania Railroad, and many of the smaller railroad lines. But depending on the length of the line, it really varied on what types of foods and services they offered. Besides the dining car, there was a lounge or club car, which was 
more like a bar where short order items like sandwiches could be ordered. And I, when I was, when I was uh, thinking about railroad dining cars, immediately what came to mind was the scene from White Christmas where they're singing in the club car about snow in Vermont. So that's one of my favorite train scenes. <laughs> um, but that's much, that's much later after the war. But um, that's really the only idea of what I knew it was like eating on board a train. You know, it's, we don't have that same experience today. And so what, what was a dining car like? Dining cars served as a respite, a place people could get up from their seats and walk through the train to get good food in a pleasant atmosphere while traveling. The length, size, and configuration of a dining car varied depending on the railroad and who manufactured it. But the standard length of the dining portion was about 40 feet long. Standard dining cars could seat 36 people, though, in my Grandpa Glenn's book that I inherited, he has this book called City of Los Angeles Streamliner. It's from 1939. Uh, their dining car could seat 68 people. So it just really depended. So I inherited two things from my great-grandpa Glenn. One was that City of Los Angeles Streamliner book, which is spiral bound. And it's all about, it's kind of like an advertising booklet about this particular new train and so it's really it's got some really great photographs in there I also inherited this packet it's an of educational photographs it's a set so they're all numbered and they focus on transportation and in this case rail travel and so these are also I believe from the late 30s early 40s they're not dated but just judging by people's clothing um, that's kind of where I'm judging it to be at, uh, definitely pre-war. And the there's some really fantastic photographs, and I especially honed in on the dining car and the dining car kitchen. So in these uh, photographs, it shows pictures of, you know, the dining cars. All the tables have crisp white tablecloths, Every table, of course, is a window seat to the passing scenery. There were curtains on the windows. Um, so this is just kind of the atmosphere that you have on in the dining car. On the B&O Railroad, they offered their exclusive Deer Park spring water and glass bottles in a special holder at the table. You know, each railroad had their own signature china and silverware service that they sometimes sold to travelers as souvenirs. Dishes, serviceware, and linens were as if you were at a regular restaurant. So there was no disposables being used here. It was all like china and silverware, linen napkins, just really fantastic stuff like that. In order to order food as a diner, you would fill out a card with your order, which the waiter would take to the kitchen. And this was an important distinction between dining cars and restaurants. So they were not allowed to just take your verbal order. You had to fill out the card and they couldn't write it down either. You had to do it. So I thought that was a very interesting distinction. So the average dining car had a staff of between eight to 10 utilizing cooks, waiters, and a steward. There was definitely a hierarchy in these jobs. So thus far in my research, I found that most waiters 
were black men, though there were some that were white. Uh, Stewards were white men, and it was a very difficult barrier to cross. The kitchen of a dining car was a very fascinating space. And the information that I found about the insides of the dining cars and the kitchen, uh, I originally found it in this book called Dining on the B&O, Recipes and Sidelights from a Bygone Age by Thomas J. Greco and Carl D. Spence. And then I learned, I noticed that they were quoting, they were actually quoting from a different source that uh, was a train magazine. It's called Trains. It's from the January 1941 issue. And so I hunted down this issue. I was so grateful. I actually found a copy and there is an entire article about how the inner workings of the dining car go about. And it's called Meals en Route. And I, it is so fascinating and it is very detailed. It is such a valuable article. It's got photographs and just really interesting details I just never even would have thought to research. So this was really invaluable in making this episode. So this information that I'm going to describe to you comes from this um, this magazine. So uh, food per- was prepared from scratch in the kitchen of the dining car. Now, I've found varying dimensions for the kitchen of the dining car, and it really just depended on the need of that particular rail line, how far it traveled and how many people it served, etc. So in this magazine... Uh, trains from January 1941 in the article it says some runs will not support a full-sized or 80-foot diner car and parlor car we call them cafe parlor or cafe lounge cars the B&O and Alton operate 42 larger diners that seat 36 people eight that seat 30 18 cafe parlor four cafe club 11 lounge and 19 reclining seat cars with dining facilities, a total of 102 cars on which food and drink may be purchased. So when I originally started researching this, I did not realize it was so complicated. (laughs) I thought it was just pretty straightforward. There was just the dining car. But no, they had all kinds of these different configurations and designs and needs based on the rail line. And I I find that really fascinating. It makes sense. Um, I just never really thought of it that way. The dining car kitchens were incredibly efficient and well-organized spaces. Think Ikea or tiny house efficiency before that was even a thing. I'm going to read uh, from the article because there's just no way I could paraphrase all the amazing details that they give. It says, a standard dining car is limited to an area of 9 by 80 feet. The part in which we sit is less than 40 feet long, yet it comfortably seats 36 or more people. At the other end is the kitchen with stoves, ovens, tables, sinks, ice boxes, cupboards, etc., occupying a space about 16 feet long and only 7.5 feet wide. There is a passageway for the passengers to get around it. A young bride in the tiny kitchenette of her small apartment has just as much space, but she probably feels she has hardly enough room to prepare a good dinner for hubby. Yet in the small kitchen of a dining car, three or more cooks work together in harmony. Next to the kitchen is the pantry, where the waiters prepare the trays. 
No space is wasted in any of these cars. Wherever it is possible to place a locker or cupboard, there we will find one. In the kitchen, there is a large refrigerator with a capacity greater than we would expect. Here are kept fresh meats, fish, crab meat, oysters, shrimp, and such. Under the table are iced lockers for vegetables. There is a place for coal and coke for the range and boiler. Immense water tanks are overhead, and double sinks provide ample water facilities. Over the table are bins for salt, flour, spices, etc. Above the range are warming ovens where rolls are kept hot after baking. Yes, rolls, muffins, pies, etc. are actually baked on the car. And for keeping plates warm. There are also racks for pots, pans, and dishes, and lockers for towels, dishcloths, and the like. In the kitchen of a full-size dining car, there are more than 50 cooking utensils. The car also carries over 700 plates, cups, saucers, and miscellaneous pieces of china and crockery, and more than 300 pieces of glassware. The silverware amounts to about 600 pieces. In the pantry are kept dishes such as salads, ices, fruits, ice cream, and other foods not prepared in the kitchen. There are cupboards for canned goods, cereals, condiments, and the like. There are 145 pieces of equipment in the pantry where the waiters prepare the dishes. It is the waiter, not the cook, who puts the final touch to the dishes he serves. And as there is no scullery made, each waiter washes his own dirty dishes and replaces them in the racks. Outside the pantry on the kitchen side of the passageway is a large iced locker for fruits and vegetables. Across the aisle is the linen locker. There are more than 1,100 pieces of linen assigned to a dining car. At the opposite end of the car from the kitchen are more lockers. Here the steward keeps beer, liquors, mineral waters, cigarettes, and cigars. Beverages must be kept cool, so there is a refrigerator at this end also. And there is still room here for the machinery, which keeps the car comfortably cool and makes dining a pleasure the year round. Wow. I, <laughs> I've, I don't know about you. I just had no idea how much went into these dining cars, how much they were capable of, and just the storage capacity. Just think of the engineering behind that, just the design that went into that. It's just astounding. And I just think we have to, you know, hats off to those those people who designed these dining cars. It's really pretty amazing. So from what I've encountered in my research, most cooks were black men. And in the photographs I've seen, that's been the case as well. I, I felt this was important to to point out because this food that they were serving was top-notch restaurant quality. And sometimes these railroad lines were famous for it. And uh, these men, I think are kind of, I think these men are the unsung heroes <laughs> um, in the culinary world. They did amazing feats in this teeny tiny space that it's a definite different skill than most cooks ever had to try and do. So I just really admire the work that they did. Um, in my Grandpa Glenn's railroad educational packet, there is the picture of a dining car kitchen with three black men working as cooks. And it's much like the article described. Uh, two of the cooks are pretty much back to back well, one is, it looks like he's working something in a fryer and the other one's uh, cooking something on a, a griddle or stovetop. There's a giant turkey in the foreground. There's pots and pans everywhere. And in the very back, there's another cook uh, doing something. It's hard to tell what he's doing by just from the picture, but there's, it's just all stainless steel kitchen. I can't even imagine how hot it was in there. It does look like they have ventilation 
and just lots of storage capacity, lots of plates. And I will definitely have a have a picture of this up on my blog for you to see because this is just really, really neat. Now, the stark contrast to this is another photograph in the collection. And I've seen this in every picture from this uh, time period of a dining car that all the guests seated to eat are white. The waiters are black and the steward is white. So the rice divides are very clear aboard the train, as was the class divide. Not everyone could afford to eat in the dining car. And that's something I'll go into later. But it's just something, you know, when you look at a lot of these photographs from this time, sometimes you can become blind to these things. And so I, I've been more conscious of this and I wanted to point it out that th there were definitely these barriers. And if you look and you study these photographs, you, you can see them very clearly. Now, one other important job that bears mentioning in this network of the rail lines and the dining car is the food specialist. They were specially trained to stock the larders of these trains with the highest quality produce and foods. Acquiring food was an incredibly complicated task as well that took a lot of foresight and planning. And the article in the Trains magazine talks about this. It says, to provide such a variety requires considerable forethought and planning. Unlike a restaurant, the dining car steward cannot send out a rush order to a butcher or greengrocer when he finds that his customers are making a run on some particular dish on the menu. Only experience teaches him just how much of each thing he must order in advance so that he will not be embarrassed by having to tell a person that he can't have something that is on the menu. The main dining car commissary of the B&O is located in Baltimore with branches in Cincinnati and Chicago. Let us take for an example a car running from New York to St. Louis. The steward on his eastbound trip makes a requisition for the supplies that he will pick up in Baltimore as he passes through on the westbound run. He also wires a requisition to Cincinnati covering the supplies he will pick up there as he passes through in both directions. In determining what is needed, the steward sits down with the chef and pantryman and they inventory the supplies on hand and then make requisitions according to what they have determined will be needed. In the Baltimore commissary each morning at 5 o'clock, the commissary storekeeper takes all of the requisitions received during the night and goes over them carefully, abstracting the various items into totals of pounds of meat, fish, vegetables, etc. Each month, approved dealers submit bids for supplying certain items of foodstuffs, the monthly contract being let to the lowest bidder, quality of course being the first consideration. When the storekeeper determines just what he needs, he telephones the suppliers and in short order, he has sufficient supplies to fill the requisitions. For cars operating through Baltimore, the orders are made up in cases and hampers and the supplies are put on when the trains stop at Camden Station, the B&O's downtown station in Baltimore. For cars not touching Baltimore, supplies are rushed by the first passenger train to points on the system where the cars can be stocked. Special watertight hampers properly iced in which perishable foods may be shipped safely are provided for that purpose. Canned goods and the like are also shipped in special hampers, but not iced. So I wanted to read that whole section because I, as you guys know, I really like knowing exactly how things work. And because this isn't something that's really talked about in great detail, just how a dining car functioned, uh, I just, this was so fascinating to me. And I really wanted to include this because in order to understand 
how rationing impacted dining cars during the war, we really have to understand like how they functioned in the first place. So in this article, uh, the author, Lawrence W. Sagal, uh, he was riding on a B&O rail line. So that's why he's particularly talking just about B&O railroad. But I wanted to also talk about that the amount of food consumed is was pretty remarkable too. And he talks about that in his article as well. So the amount of perishables consumed is staggering. In one month, the B&O purchased 3,712 pounds of bacon, 22,316 pounds of beef, 11,253 pounds of fowl, 5,432 dozen eggs, 15,167 pounds of fish, 8,900 pounds of ham, 1,326 pounds of lamb legs, 1,024 pounds of shrimp, and 2,226 pounds of turkeys. And that last item wasn't in December, as you might think, but in June. The average money value of foodstuffs purchased for B&O dining cards is about $50,000 monthly. Ice and fuel each month cost about $3,000. Mineral waters, beer, wines, and liquors, $3,000. Cigars, cigarettes, candy, magazines, and playing cards, $1,200. So... (laughs) And then it goes into the linen bill, like the laundry. <laughs> so it's just just the amount of food in one month. That is just for one rail line. That's amazing. <laughs> so, of course, this is pre-war. This is January 1941. Uh, things will change soon. <laughs> now, you might be wondering, like, this was a really great moneymaker for the rail lines, right? No. No, it wasn't. The dining car service was not a moneymaker for the rail lines. In fact, railroads usually operated their dining cars at a loss. So why did they still do it? Well, they were primarily a marketing scheme. Dining cars boosted the image of the railroad, showing that it took good care of its customers with food and dining service. Many railroads served food that was comparable, like I said, with the best restaurants around the country, and they were known for specific dishes. Many of them were regional. So like aboard the B&O Railroad, they would offer things like on the Southern Pacific they wouldn't offer there. So it, it was a really special and unique dining experience, and they really pushed that. Now, as you might imagine, eating in the dining car was a luxury in price, In one video I watched for research, he talks about this famous sandwich served on the B&O train that was $2.50, but in today's money, it was about $18. So if that gives you an idea of the type of luxury we're talking about. Then came the war. There were, of course, rationing and food shortages. Just having enough food with the increased burden of passengers using rail travel made feeding them all very difficult but nobody talks about this part. Why? (laughs) I don't understand why everyone glosses over the warriors like it's uncomfortable and not part of the glory days of train travel because of all the restrictions. Um, I just think railroad historians have done the public a huge disservice. It's completely fascinating and such an important aspect of train travel to talk about, like how railroads coped with the shortages like everyone else especially because everyone relied on rail travel so much. It really is such an important part of transportation history. We need to talk about it. 
So we are going to dig into this because, well, that's what we do here. (laughs) So the big question is, how were railroads affected by rationing? Well, they were affected just like everyone else. They met restrictions as best they could, but they coped with it in varying ways. And it depended on the product as well. And what time of year, what part of the country, what part of the war. Like, of course, there's all of those variations that was different. So you can't just put out a blanket statement and say, this is how they dealt with it. Because each rail line was in a different part of the country, They, which each region had its own problems or own benefits even. And so it just depends. I came across an article in the St. Louis Star and Times from June 1st, 1942, talking about rail diners feeling the pinch of coffee and tea limits. And it says, railroad dining car guests are feeling the pinch of coffee and tea restrictions imposed by the War Production Board to conserve dwindling supplies. With coffee deliveries limited to 75% of last year's purchases and tea cut to 50%, Various methods have been adopted on railroad diners to limit consumption. Most railroads either are actually rationing coffee and tea or are discouraging second helpings. Sugar consumption is rationed strictly by all railroads, as is the case in most restaurants. Railroad dining cars are getting from 50 to 75% more business than a year ago. Most severe restrictions on coffee and tea are on Pennsylvania railroad diners, They serve coffee only for breakfast and tea only at dinner, both with a limit of one cup. Coffee and tea have been stricken from luncheon menus. This is early in the war, and what's interesting is that the OPA is restricting railroads on how much coffee they're serving when coffee isn't even rationed for the public yet and won't be until November of 1942. And then about the tea... This was a surprise. I had never heard anything, any mention of tea ever in all of my research until now that tea was was cut. And you can see how different railroads coped with it in their own ways. Some were stricter than others. And they all had the same type of restriction, but just how they dealt with it was just, you know, what was their discretion. But poor Pennsylvania Railroad Diners. <laughs> that stinks. Next up is a gem of an article that clearly lays out the struggle railroads were having with the rationing. It goes into incredible details. So I hope you forgive me reading the whole thing. But it's just so enlightening on so many fronts. And like I said before, no one talks about this aspect of rationing. So I'm doing it. I also have to mention that because of copyright issues for images of the newspaper article, I can't put images of this article on my blog. So that's another reason why I wanted to read it to you. Now, this article is from the Inquirer from Cincinnati, Ohio, from August 2nd, 1943. This is not too long after, just a few months after full-on rationing has started. So... Full-time rationing for food started in March of 1943. So we've had a few months go by and uh, people are really feeling it now. The headline reads, Railroads meet snag in dining car service with food rationing. Menus reveal drastic steps taken to stay within OPA regulations. It was written by Fred B. Stouffer. Out of New York, August 1st. 
Come and bring your lunch is no longer just an invitation to a picnic, but just the standard recommendation of the railroads for passengers who would be sure of being fed. For trying to get food, either in the quantity or variety desired, is no picnic on most railroads of the country today. Nobody regrets the change from pre-war days more than railroad managements themselves because without existing and necessary rationing restrictions and without the present shortage of dining cars, this Department of Rail Operations would be having the relatively new experience of being financially self-supporting. But the War Production Board, through eliminations of dining car construction, the Office of Price Administration through rationing and price ceilings, and the Office of Defense Transportation through its efforts to restrict dining car patronage all have laid a heavy burden on dining car service. A little tongue-in-cheek here. (laughs) Walk into any railroad dining car, or rather, wait your turn at the door and then get to a table, and the effect of the war becomes apparent at once on the printed menu. Both prices and types of meals allowed to be served have been virtually standardized by OPA orders, Such regulations, of course, merely set limits which cannot be exceeded or unfairly reduced, but they cannot possibly take into account just what a given road can obtain for a specific meal. Now, in this article, he uses the term road, which is just slang or short term for railroad. So I found that confusing at first, but that's what he's just that's what he's meaning. The strict rationing of sugar, coffee, and processed foods are only a small part of the problem, and most roads report they have been getting along in spite of the increase of nearly 100% in the travel by rail since the start of the war. The New York, New Haven, and Hartford, for example, notes that from an initial ration of 50% of the amount of sugar used in the preceding year, the allotment finally was cut to approximately 0.03 pounds for each person served. Similarly, the coffee ration dipped to 0.031 pound a person. By permanent removal of the sugar bowls from tables, by restriction of coffee to one cup to a customer, and by elimination of sale of coffee by train bushers in other cars, this road and others have managed to get along reasonably well. Processed foods are another point at which rationing hits. The New Haven notes that in the base period, December 1942, its use was 643,096 points. On this base, the road was allowed 151,054 points in March this year. Actual consumption in March was 68,000 points, the big discrepancy in the road's favor rising from the fact that the December base included 400,000 points for tomato juice being held against summer consumption. Meat rationing for this road reduced its supply about 30%, necessitating drastic menu changes and substitution of poultry and unrationed items at many meals. Careful accounting is required to ensure that available points are not used too rapidly. The New York Central notes that the dining car service has been beset with all the problems of the restaurant industry in general, plus the fact that mobility of equipment makes it difficult to keep supplies on hand. The Baltimore and Ohio has tackled the latter phase with respect to vegetable supplies in the summer months by setting up a system of purchasing supplies from Victory Gardens along its lines. Complete specifications of quality and size of shipments of such supplies have been issued, as for example asparagus 12 to 18 stalks to a bundle and 12 bundles to a crate, and cantaloupes 24 to 30 to a crate. The Pennsylvania has sought to alleviate its dining car situation by preparation of quick service meals brought to the table complete in one serving. In addition, it has eliminated sale of alcoholic beverages at tables while other passengers are waiting to be served. Its menus contain many notes on the unavailability of unlimited amounts of the rationed items.
Roads like Chesapeake and Ohio, not normally a large passenger carrier, have been particularly hard-pressed by the necessity of feeding servicemen in organized troop movements of considerable size. That this catering to the armed forces can be a big problem is indicated by one road which serves 150,000 to 200,000 meals a month in organized troop movements, apart from the soldiers, sailors, and Marines traveling on furlough. Furlough meals, incidentally, are served at reduced prices from those appearing on the standard menus. Food difficulties are the major headache of the dining service in wartime, but personnel problems and the shortages of many items of dining car equipment also contribute to a changed atmosphere in the cars. For example, one road reports that linen no longer is available for cloths and napkins, resulting in the present use of a treated cotton fabric lacking the customary sheen. The silverware setup at each table has been reduced from six to three pieces because the tableware no longer is being manufactured. Roads using blue china have encountered difficulty because the cobalt used in coloring is a critical material. Kitchenware supplies still are regarded adequate on the reporting roads. That is the end of the article. Wow, that is chock full of information. And uh, I just wanted to mention the train butchers he makes reference to. I've, I've heard this term in quite a few articles. I believe they're referring to the people who would come aboard and sell food items from a cart or something like that. And so that that is their term. I, I guess I'd never heard that before. So how they were coping in 1943 with these restrictions was, I mean, they were struggling. <laughs> um, I found it interesting that the B&O purchased produce from Victory Gardens along its lines. I think that's really clever and really smart. <laughs> Um, another thing that we learned from this article is that railroads were given a specific amount of points to use to purchase their foods. So while diners did not use their own personal ration points to eat in dining cars, it looks like this is where the ration points were. It's the the railroads had to deal with the ration points because they were the point of where the food was being purchased wholesale or whatever, just, you know, from the store or the shop, the commissary and being used in the kitchen. So I find that really interesting. I was wondering about that. Like where, how are they regulating this? And this is how. And also just the, the sheer amount of people traveling on these rail lines and demanding food service. And this, this small Chesapeake and Ohio line they were feeding uh, servicemen in organized troop movements. They were having to feed them. And then also the men that were on furlough, feeding them at reduced prices. Because that was pretty standard that railroads would offer meals, specific meals. Not like everything, but like specific meals for servicemen and women at a reduced cost. Really fascinating detailed information about the rail lines and their struggle in wartime. Some really special resources that I have for the dining cars were some things I was collecting for my display at the World War II event. And those were wartime era dining car menus. Finding a cookbook is very tricky. There aren't really many and they weren't specific to wartime. So it's that's not that hunt has not been helpful to me. But what has been helpful is finding these wartime dining car menus. 
And I found a few for my display, but since then, while preparing for this podcast, I found a few more. So studying these has been very interesting. It's just the trend seems to be that there is a more restricted uh, amount of foods available. There's interesting propaganda on them. There is usually some mention of troops and military and buying war bonds. And then, of course, OPA restrictions and price ceilings. A lot of really great wartime information on these menus. So I will have some images of them on my blog. And they come from all different rail lines. I've just been so excited whenever I find a new one um, because they're just all so different. So you'll be able to see those on my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. Now, how did people get food while traveling if they couldn't afford this dining car food? And it we mentioned the local vendors who would come aboard the train selling food, the train butchers. There were train station canteens or restaurants uh, or kind of like diners. Some of them were just for the military. During the war, there was some set up that were just for them. There were lunch boxes sold on board or passengers brought their own lunches. In fact, there's this really cute ad I found for a baby drinking a bottle saying, bright young man solves wartime eating problem on the train. And in parentheses, many grownups bring lunch boxes. <laughs> and so it talks about how the dining cars are serving nearly five times as many people. So you should bring your own lunch on board if you can or eat beforehand. So, uh, but this baby's got it all solved. <laughs> And, you know, before, you know, what did people do before there were, a, you know, standard dining cars even? I mean, they brought hampers or, you know, their own lunches aboard. So, I mean, people knew how to do this. And there were services available like vendors and stuff. But Southern Pacific put out a little pamphlet encouraging passengers to eat before boarding the train. But they also had some other wartime tips. It says, these war days, it's often wise to eat before you board the train. All those letters are capitalized, by the way. <laughs> we don't like to have people go hungry on our trains. We don't like to keep them waiting for a seat in our dining cars. But look, here's what we're up against. One, we are serving more military meals in our dining cars than any other two U.S. railroads combined. Two, SP in 1942 served 4,898,322 more dining car meals then in 1940, nearly three times as many. We served a million more meals than any other railroad. We did this with no more dining cars than we had in 1940. And every day, our job grows bigger. So I, I think it's important to point this out too. And it's mentioned in that article I read is that they the U.S. was not allowing them to build any more dining cars. So, I mean, they could have solved the problem by tacking on more dining cars to trains but the materials to build them just weren't there and they weren't going to let them have those materials because the military needed them. So that was part of the problem. Three, many SP diners are in military use, so we can't add extra diners on jam-packed passenger trains and we can't buy new dining cars because of critical material shortages. So like I said. <laughs> Four, in our dining cars on regular trains, men of the armed forces traveling in groups are served first. Ahead of civilians, okay with you? Five, we're short of trained help. Many of our cooks and waiters are now in the Army and Navy. Six, because of rationing and food shortages, our food supplies have been drastically reduced. Any housewife will understand our problem here. 
We can serve but one cup of coffee per person for breakfast and none for dinner. So that's kind of the grim, grim facts that they're presenting to their their diners. But they had some suggestions too. So for breakfast, if your train leaves in the morning, eat your first meal of the day before you board the train. For lunch, they say, we can't serve you lunch in the dining cars anymore. Because of rationing as well as food shortages, we can get supplies for only two meal periods daily, breakfast and dinner. Breakfast is served from early morning till noon, dinner from four o'clock on. At noontime or for other meals, we suggest you buy one of the box lunches, which are sold on many trains and at some stations. Another good idea is to bring your own lunch with you. This was common practice in pioneer days. Grandma would get a chuckle out of our suggesting it today. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, ho. I just think that's funny. So um, I find this really interesting too. I guess I didn't realize they did not serve lunch at all, at least on the SP trains. Dinner. So for dinner, if your train leaves towards late afternoon or in the evening, eat dinner before you board the train. And then they say, of course, if you do eat breakfast or dinner, no lunch is served in our dining car, we'll do our best to take care of you and make your meal a pleasant one. But please remember when you get a seat that lots of other folks are still waiting to be served. When you finish dining, please don't linger. Enjoy your after meal chat and smoke in some other part of the train. Needless to say, we'll try to make up for every inconvenience you suffer now with greatly improved service after the war. Signed, the friendly Southern Pacific. Aw. You know, I find it interesting, though. This is the only rail line that I found that had service announcements like this. I Maybe there were more, but this was the most prolific, at least. This one, they they had a pamphlet. They had ads, like the one with the baby. That was a Southern Pacific ad explaining the things to passengers. And I think when things can be explained with facts, it makes people not so angry <laughs> and and disgruntled so I don't know I think it was good marketing on their part now something also to point out is that dining cars made the perfect vital infrastructure already in place for the government to feed soldiers on the move via rail across the country so here they've got a transportation system already in place and there's food on board already (laughs) so why wouldn't you utilize that pardon if you can hear lawn mowing in the distance my son is mowing the lawn but it's going to rain later so I can't ask him to stop while I record so I I apologize if you can hear that in the background I found an article in the Knoxville News Sentinel from Tennessee dated February 12 1944 so this is later in the war And, you know, we've talked about how it was expensive to eat in the dining car. Well, there was a representative, uh, Edwin Arthur Hall, Republican from New York. He introduced a bill to allow furloughed servicemen and women to ride free on trains and buses. Now he had a resolution calling on Congress to make the railroads cut down the high cost of eating in the diners for uniformed travelers. So I'm not sure. I mean, I thought they had already done this um, before 1944, like as a courtesy. I don't think, I think it was voluntary. I don't think there was any like law needed to be passed to make them do this, but maybe, maybe it was still too expensive which um, 
we'll go into that in a little bit too. <laughs> the resolution reads, Whereas the men and women in our armed forces are being charged unreasonably high prices for food on railroad trains while traveling, and whereas these patriotic soldiers, sailors, and Marines cannot afford to pay high prices for their meals, and whereas special considerations should be made by the railroads for these men and women who are sacrificing so much for their country, therefore be it resolved that Congress requests the railroads of our nation to lower food rates in their dining cars to servicemen and women and reestablish these existing rates at popular restaurant prices. <laughs> so I guess maybe it was still too high. And he's trying to have Congress strong arm the railroads into lowering the prices even more. But as we already know, this sounds like an economics game here because then maybe a popularity thing. <laughs> it's going to make him look good if he can get it done. But as we know, the railroads are already operating at a loss on these dining cars. So having to reduce it even more <laughs> is bad <laughs> for them. Now, there is a distinction between how the military travel. If they are traveling as a troop movement or if they're on duty, then their food would be paid for by the government. If they were on furlough, they had to pay for it on their own dime. So they that's when they would get the discount. And that's very important. Keep that in mind because that will come into play later <laughs> in the episode. Now, in my newspaper digging, I came across a delightful article. <laughs> it's actually a serial, like a story serial. Uh, it was in the Asbury Park Press from New Jersey in April 1942. It was written by H.I. Phillips. And at the top, it says, The Papers of Private Perky. And I was like, is this a real person <laughs> with a name like Private Perky? <laughs> it's spelled P-U-R-K-E-Y. Now, I was very fascinated with this particular one because he talks about eating aboard the train. So, of course, I have to read it. <laughs> Dear Ma, I just got back from a furlough after a long ride on a train, so the news that the railroads has decided to hand out cheaper chow is especially welcome. And, by the way, there's a lot of misspellings in this, so especially spelled E-S-P-E-S-H-U-L-L-Y. <laughs> It means that from now on, a Jeep can afford to order something in a dining car besides Boston baked beans and brown bread. I guess a soldier never feels in a tougher spot and in need of a rescue party as when he gets into a dining car and takes a gander at the menu. I have even seen my old Sarge Mooney, who would face a panzer division without no fear, whatever, look white and act intimidated so soon as he opened one of them and read the price list showing what it would cost him to stow away a little grub while going through tunnels. I bet even General MacArthur don't look like no hero when he is struggling with a dining car menu. <laughs> if he had been on the diner I was on, getting back to camp trying to pick out a square meal for himself on army pay, he would have retreated to the day coach and waited for the boy to come through with the can of coffee and the ham sandwiches. I always wondered why American railroads, with all the brains behind them, never could figure out something better than these things for people who are not millionaire travelers. Some of them have put on grill cars, which make it easier for a man to eat on a train without a part-time payment plan. But those regular dining cars on many roads has acted like they was branches of the stork club. Well, at last, the railroads have turned kind-hearted and cut the charges down 10%, which could not exactly be called getting too generous to soldiers and sailors, neither as a square meal will still run to at least from $1.25 to two fifty, 
Unless I'm on a diet and 10% off will not mean I can splurge and order Jello. But everything little bit helps and I guess it will not break the railroads. Well, I meant to write more, but I am getting another stretch of guard duty as usual. So we'll close now with all my love, Oscar. <laughs> uh, so yeah, now this was 1942 and it looks like they did. I mean, if it's a, this article or this uh, serial was kind of a reflection commentary of the times, you know, they did get a 10% reduction in for, you know, for soldiers, but obviously it was enough because remember that sandwich I talked about earlier, that was two fifty. That's like 18 bucks in today's money. <laughs> so on a soldier's pay, I don't know if they were making that much, but, uh, I, I just really love the spiciness of this article. <laughs> now I looked up this, this author and this, the private, the papers of private Perky, it is a book and it, now, it doesn't include this part about him riding on the railroad, but it was very enlightening <laughs> and very chuckle-worthy. Yeah, very entertaining. I wanted, while we're on the military subject, I wanted to add an, a side note about troop kitchen cars. I found on a museum website, uh, the Hoosier Valley Railroad Museum from Indiana, my home state. <laughs> they explained that these kitchen cars were used as rolling kitchens by the military to feed the troops en route to various ports. So it sounds like they didn't always just use the railroad dining cars like they had their own. On another helpful museum website, the Heart of Dixie Railroad Museum from Alabama, they gave some great details about troop kitchen cars. There were 440 of these cars made for the U.S. Army. It says they were owned by the Defense Plant Corporation and were operated by the Pullman Company for the military via an agreement with the railroads on which they traveled. So that's an interesting point. The website also says this about these cars and it gives some detail about them, which is always fantastic. It says when built, these cars had a vapor steam heating system and air pressure water system and battery powered lighting. The original weight was 38.75 tons. As built, the cars had a work table, utensil drawers, cupboards, refrigerator, two large sinks, water tanks, two cast iron coal-fired army ranges in tandem, a wood storage bin, and a half-ton coal box with rooftop hatch. These areas were in two-thirds of the car, and the other third of the car was a shower, toilet, fold-up sink, and water tanks. The cars also had a bread locker and meat cutting table. So this car was different from a dining car like we've been talking about. This entire, pretty much the entire thing, at least two thirds of it, was the kitchen preparation of food area for a troop car, a troop train. And so therefore was much bigger. I find that really fascinating so talking about these high prices that people had to pay on dining cars, uh, the OPA, early in 1943, the OPA had already put a ceiling on food prices on dining cars. In the Tampa Tribune in June 1943, there's a headline that says, Economy Meals to be Served on Rail Diners. It says, Most railroad dining cars will serve, 
quote, economy meals with a maximum price for breakfast, 85 cents, luncheon, a dollar, and dinner, a dollar ten, beginning July 1st. Prices must not exceed those charged between February 1st and April 10th. Appetizers and desserts are stripped from the standardized meals, which will be served on all dining cars except on special all-Pullman trains. On the latter, prices must not exceed those prevailing between February 1st and April 10th. And the same article in a different newspaper titled it, Rail Diners Serve Snacks. <laughs> I, I find this so funny because um, it's really about whoever is writing the article, what they define as a meal. So here they're saying economy meals, and then another writer is calling them snacks. <laughs> oh, dear. So, so that's another way that I guess some railroads uh, coped with the restrictions um, and controlled prices. There was another article from the Altoona Tribune from Pennsylvania dated 29th of July, 1943. So this is, you know, soon after full-time rationing was put in place talking about the prices of things and why it was so expensive and how they were dealing with it. The cost of food served on railway trains has been stabilized in three ways. One, introduction of regular standardized economy meals and dining cars. Two, establishment of ceiling prices on other items on the bill of fare. Three, regulation of food and soft drink prices charged by train butchers. Economy meals are served on all but a few extra fare all Pullman trains and are priced on the same on all lines throughout the country. The price of other meals as well as food and beverages served a la carte in all dining cars must not be any higher item by item than the highest price charge for the same item between February 1st and April 10th, 1943. So in other words, no price gouging. <laughs> In general, the same menus, quality, and quantity of food together with the same standards of service shall be maintained under the new price as were in effect during the base period. Alcoholic beverages served either in club or dining cars are included. Additional items not served during that period are priced in line with similar items served then. Sales of sandwiches, candy, beverages, etc. made by trained butchers or vendors are guarded particularly to protect soldiers traveling on furloughs and civilians making short trips. The maximum prices must be posted on the basket or affixed to each item of food or beverage. Top prices will not apply to sales made by vendors who board trains at local stops and get off when the train is ready to leave. In such instances, local restaurant price regulations apply. So I, I think this was a really important thing to talk about because, you know, prices for food and um, were regulated by the OPA during the war very carefully. They did not want runaway prices like they'd seen in World War One. So this category of the railroad dining cars, you know, this was just like restaurants. They had to make sure that these travelers had options, that prices were regulated and they were posted and that people were not being gouged by inflation, like localized inflation. And and there was very specific guidelines on how they were doing that. It was a humongous, humongous job um, making sure that the prices stayed relatively calm <laughs> in spite of the restrictions. Even though we know that dining aboard 
the trains was more expensive, they did try to provide more affordable options for people and to keep those options available because, yeah, we know there was way more people traveling on the railroads. So it's just a really fascinating system, very complex. And as if rationing and runaway prices weren't enough of a concern, (laughs) we now come to some crazy and serious headlines. While digging through newspapers online, I came across a railroad dining car scandal titled Troops Among Dupes in Rail Diner Racket. When I read this, I actually gasped because not just because it had to do with my topic, but it just blew me away. Who would swindle the troops fighting for their country in the middle of the war (laughs) on dining cars? So, uh, yes, let's find out, shall we? Now, I found this article in the Bradford era from Bradford, Pennsylvania, dated August 24th, 1945. It says, stewards, waiters, and cooks involved in $100,000 swindle. It's out of New York, August 23rd. Servicemen and inexperienced wartime travelers were pawns, the FBI said today, in a dining car racket, which cost two railroads more than $100,000 in a year and netted stewards, waiters, and cooks as much as $50 each on every trip. The FBI made the announcement with the arrest of 118 New York Central and Erie Railroad employees in New York, Newark, Buffalo, and Chicago on charges of violating the general conspiracy statute by conspiracy to violate the provisions pertaining to theft from interstate shipment. 59 persons were taken into custody in New York. E.E. Conroy, special agent in charge of the New York FBI office, said FBI men assigned as stewards to the Ohio State Limited, the Knickerbocker and other trains found food and liquor checks were manipulated and breadcrumbs substituted for ground meat. He said they uncovered these schemes. Waiters would take orders orally, never submit a check, and then keep the money paid for the food. Waiters would leave order blanks in inconspicuous places on tables without pencils, hoping to discourage travelers from writing out their desires, and after the meal would only pretend to fill out the check and then collect the money. Waiters would take orders orally and then present checks used before by someone who had eaten an identical meal. Waiters would fill out soldiers' government orders with the most expensive meal offered, regardless of what the servicemen ordered to cover meals served other passengers. Cooks would sell patrons ground meat intended for the crew, mix breadcrumbs with ground steak, reduce portions, and provide basket salesmen, the men who sold sandwiches and soft drinks through the coaches, with cooking juices from the kitchen for fruit drinks. Oh, Conroy said stewards were in charge of the so-called racket and divided the profits with waiters, cooks, and basket salesmen. The New York Central System in a statement said the company had become suspicious some time ago that dining car employees were serving meals without checks and diverting the price money collected to their own pockets. Oh, dear. That's pretty terrible. And you'd think that would be an anomaly, but it wasn't. I found another headline for a different scandal across the country in California for some months earlier in December 1944. The headline says, Rail Diner Help Find $9,250. And it just talks about how there is pretty much the same type of thing. 
20 stewards and assistant stewards and waiters of Union Pacific trains pleaded no contest to charges. They conspired to commit theft in interstate commerce. They weren't just fined, though. They There was varying jail sentences imposed, but all were suspended, and the 20 defendants were placed on probation for 18 months on condition that they stay out of dining car employment for that period um, because they, the judge did not want them to demand reinstatement in their railroad jobs. So <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to say about that, except just, wow. <laughs> um. It's really a shame that uh, such crimes would take place, um, especially at the cost and advantage of, you know, innocent people and troops <laughs> on duty serving the country. But it just, I guess it shows that, you know, crime doesn't stop in wartime. I think the interesting thing to learn from this, though, is, I mean, just also kind of how the dining cars worked. We learned how they took orders for food, but then in this case, they we learned how they could be manipulated um, if not done correctly. So I think that's actually fascinating in and of itself. There is a reason why there was a specific way to go about taking orders from diners, that they had to fill them out themselves, and that, you know, even though the troops' food was on the government's dime, you know, the government paying for it was essentially the American public paying for it. So, um, so that wasn't cool. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, um, I hate to leave this episode off with such a sad story, but don't worry. Our cookbook feature and the recipe I tried will sweeten things right up. Today's cookbook feature is Military Meals at Home Cookbook. 250 recipes adapted for home use from recipes used by the armed forces. This is one of the very many, many Culinary Arts Institute cookbooks that are from this time period. Edited by Ruth Berelzheimer. And uh, she's, she's edited many of these books. And uh, but this is a very special issue because it's adapting the for home use, these recipes used by the armed forces. And in the introduction, it says the recipes in this little book are those used by the military services in their kitchens and galleys. Presenting them in a form that the homemaker will find useful is entirely the responsibility of the editor and her staff, and nothing in the book is to be construed as endorsement by any of the military services since the government and its services do not endorse any product. (laughs) Oh, so that was the disclaimer, (laughs) not the introduction. Well, it's in the introduction. So the true introduction says... It is a truism that food is what men fight with, but it has only recently been recognized that food is what men see with and fly with. High vitamin food is what supports the terrific strain of emergencies. In recognizing these facts, the military services have taken over all of the most advanced advice of the experts in nutrition and passed it along to those responsible for preparing and serving meals. This means that the men and women in the military services get the kind of food that builds bodies, brain, and nerves sight and hearing, as well as endurance, energy, strength, vitality, and resistance. 
The recipes in this book are those that do the trick. The homemaker will not be surprised to find many recipes that are familiar ones in her household. She will probably find many new ones and some new ways of preparing old and well-known dishes. These she will do well to cultivate. Many of the simpler recipes used by the armed forces have been omitted because they are in common use or readily available elsewhere. And then it has a list of all the, you know, pretty standard things like boiled onions, boiled sweet potatoes, brains and eggs, apple cobbler, brown betty, French dressing. (laughs) You know, the standard stuff. It might be well to remember that bodybuilding rests too on the regularity of exercise and sleep, as well as good food in sufficient quantities. Many families might adopt with profit the slogan of the armed forces, take all you want, but eat all you take. No bodies are built by food that is left on the plate, and both grown-ups and children will do well to follow this lead. So that is the premise of this cookbook. It's got great little military illustrations throughout which is why this book is so special. When you look through the recipes, you think, oh, they're not that special. Like they're just standard, stodgy American food. (laughs) But there, I mean, there are some really great promising recipes in here that I cannot wait to try. But it's just like soups and stews and meat, lots of meat. And then a variety of very interesting vegetables, beans, beets, cabbage, some fried things. So all kinds of things. Now, I could not decide what I wanted to make. I was just there's so many things to try, but also so many like things that were a little too familiar that just didn't really stand out to me. And so in the end, I decided to make ice cream because that is kind of an an iconic American soldier food, at least in the States. I know overseas American soldiers did not get that, but, or neither did any other soldiers in other countries, <laughs> but it, that's why I say it's, it's this, just this iconic American soldier thing. Um, at least in things that I've read and pictures I've seen, soldiers and ice cream they just they loved and they loved it so I wanted to try this military-esque ice cream because I have made a wartime ice cream in the past and I've made one recently and it uses a specific custard base that's a little tricky so I want to try this new one it uses half cup sugar quarter cup flour two eggs two cups milk some salt, like a very tiny bit, eighth of a teaspoon, one and a half teaspoons of vanilla, and then two cups of cream. It doesn't say what type of cream, but you could use light cream, half and half. Uh, do not use whipping cream, though. That's not patriotic at all. <laughs> That'd be cheating. Uh, or you could use whole milk to kind of bolster the fat content in here. I have two percent on hand so that's what I used and then I had some light cream and half and half in the fridge that I I used but you can even use evaporated milk so there's that too (laughs) so just kind of play around with it so you combine the sugar now this is where it was such a revelation because like I said before usually custard based ice creams are a little tricky because you know you have to like cook the milk and then 
uh, add it to the, the beaten eggs and then slowly so you don't like cook the eggs and then add it back in. Like it's, it's annoying. Okay. This method though was amazing. And it's so simple. What you do, you combine the sugar and flour in top of a double boiler. And I was like, what? <laughs> then you beat the eggs add the milk and the salt, and then you add gradually to the dry ingredients, stirring to prevent lumping. So you're just adding it all in at the beginning, at the get-go. Then you cook until the mixture begins to thicken, and then you chill it. That's it. (laughs) You add the vanilla and cream after it's been chilled, and then you freeze it in a crank freezer. It makes one quart. Whoa. I've never tried something so simple and so when I I tried it I was just really blown away by how easy it was there's no curdling of eggs there was nothing like that it was so easy now flour and ice cream you might be wondering like that's weird it is kind of the thickening agent because you don't have that heavy fat content they needed that some wartime recipes will use gelatin or cornstarch Uh, this ice cream used flour Uh, Now, in the recipe, it says you can use any flavoring extract in place of the vanilla or any fruit may be added. I decided actually to make this a chocolate ice cream because it says it gives options for a chocolate or coffee version. So I used two ounces of chocolate and melted the chocolate and added it to the, the hot milk custard. You know, it only has a half cup of sugar with two ounces of chocolate. It is not very sweet, but my whole family loved it. It, The chocolate flavor is so distinct. Um, There's no sugar, (laughs) not enough sugar to get in the way. (laughs) Um, But it was a very pleasant, a pleasant balance. So it's not too sweet at all. So very interesting ice cream. And the method I would recommend 100%. It is so easy to make. I have a, like an electric mixer, I mean, uh, ice cream maker that you plug in, you chill the, the canister in the freezer because it's like one of those gel canisters. So that's what I used to make mine. You could easily double this and make it in like an old fashioned ice cream with, you know, rock salt and, and ice. <laughs> you could do it that way. So anyway, this, this was a really good recipe. Uh, and so I will have this recipe on my blog along with pictures of the delicious ice cream I made for you to try yourself. Today's story highlight comes from an article I found on thefreelibrary.com. And it is about Southern Pacific's first African-American dining car steward, Mr. Charles Johnson. Now, while this story doesn't take place during wartime, I felt it was really important to honor this man because this was a really important milestone in his life that he says was the most important event he had witnessed in his lifetimes when they broke down the color barrier. And he was proud of his successful fight to become a steward and for his contribution toward eliminating that color line that restricted opportunities for African-Americans. 
Johnson obtained the steward's job with the help of his union, the Brotherhood of Dining Car Cooks and Waiters, an organization of black men employed by the Southern Pacific that was recognized by the American Federation of Labor. The union supported Johnson during his 12-year fight to be promoted from waiter to steward, which until then had been a job for white men. Johnson, a lifelong member of the NAACP, recalled that black waiters sometimes performed the steward's duties but were called waiters in charge instead of stewards and received less pay. Johnson wanted to become a steward because, quote, they paid you more money and you already knew the work, close quote. Stewards supervised the cooks and waiters, greeted and seated passengers, and were responsible for the money received from diners. He says, you collected the money, made reports, and turned the money over to the Southern Pacific in San Francisco, he said. That's where the Southern Pacific headquarters were. The years before World War II were the heyday of American passenger train travel. For 35 years, Johnson worked on the morning daylight train, which made daily trips between Los Angeles and San Francisco. The people who could afford it had beds on in the Pullman cars, he said. The others slept in the seats. Most of the people were in these chair cars. At the time, the chair cars were in front of the train because they burned coal and debris in front of the train. The more expensive Pullman service cars were pulled at the back of the train behind the dining car. In addition to the kitchen car, the train featured a coffee shop and a more elegant dining car. Passengers in the dining room were served soup in a cup, which Johnson said had to have a top on it. A fish starter, salad, and main entree. The salad was served in a big bowl. You could have as much as you wanted, he said. Johnson was born October 25, 1912 in Gretna, Louisiana. When he was 16, he took a job as a busboy at the St. Charles Hotel nearby New Orleans, where he learned to cook and wait on tables. He was a waiter in Houston when he heard that the Southern Pacific was hiring blacks to work in Los Angeles, so in 1936 he headed to Los Angeles with $10 in his pocket. After Amtrak took over Southern Pacific's passenger service in 1971, Johnson was made supervisor for the porters, chefs, and waiters working on trains from Seattle to New Orleans. He retired from Amtrak in 1979 after more than 40 years of railroad work. He then taught culinary arts in New York, Boston, Chicago, and other places in the country. So um, that's an incredible lifetime uh, legacy of working on the railroad. I really admire his strength and perseverance despite the prejudice and racism that he faced um, and still working so hard to eliminate that color line. So I just thought this was a really inspiring story that I wanted to share with you and um, that had to do with our topic. I will have the link for this article, the full article on my blog so you can read it. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me on this fascinating journey of learning about wartime rationing aboard dining cars. If you'd like to support my work and future episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash victory kitchen podcast. You can also follow me over on Instagram at victory kitchen podcast, where I, I post all the updates about what's going on with my research and recipes I'm trying and all kinds of fun things over there. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.